and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the efforts by the Biden administration to deal with the flood of migrants from Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala by attacking the root causes of why migrants flee their homelands, which are largely due to corruption, lawlessness and violence. With Vice President Kamala Harris announcing a $310 million humanitarian aid package to Central America, we will get an analysis of how much of that money will reach the people, given that the leader of Guatemala was responsible for a prison massacre involving extrajudicial killings. The leader of Honduras is immersed in drug dealing with his brother in a U.S. prison for importing hundreds of tons of cocaine into the U.S., and the leader of El Salvador is an outright fascist who just removed the country's judiciary. Joining us is a cultural anthropologist, Victoria Sanford, who studies human rights and international humanitarian law and is the director of the Center for Human Rights and Peace Studies at Lehman College, City University of New York, who has spent years uncovering evidence of genocide in Guatemala. She joins us to discuss her article at Barrio Zona, Central America Needs a Regional Commission to Prosecute Corruption, Not a War on Migration, and the need for the OAS and the UN to get involved to help the US clean up these criminal regimes so that humanitarian aid ends up helping the people, not lining the pockets of corrupt leaders. Then we'll assess the FDA's authorization of Pfizer's COVID shot for 12 to 15-year-olds under the EUA Emergency Youth Authorization, which is getting resistance from parents who have been vaccinated but are wary of giving the same shots to their kids. Dorit Rice, a professor of law and chair of litigation at the University of California's Hastings College of Law, whose research focuses on legal and policy issues related to vaccines, joins us. We will discuss the article she co-authored at Barron's one more argument against vaccine mandates crumbles and the fact that vaccines are not about you and your choices but about your choice to make others less safe. Then finally we'll speak with Patrick Radden Keefe, an award-winning author and staff writer at The New Yorker whose new book just out is Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. He joins us to discuss how 24 state attorneys general are suing to oppose a plan a federal judge will rule on Wednesday that could shield the Sackler family's $10 billion of wealth from the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma, which they own, that manufactured OxyContin, an opioid the Sacklers deceptively marketed, which claimed more than 500,000 lives. And joining us now is cultural anthropologist Victoria Sanford, who studies human rights, international humanitarian law, the anthropology of genocide, race and gender in the Americas and child soldiers within Guatemala, Colombia and South Africa. And she's the director of the Center for Human Rights. And she is the director of the Center for Human Rights and Peace Studies based at Lehman College in the city of the University of New York. And she has spent years uncovering evidence of genocide in Guatemala. And she has an article at Barrio Zona, Central America Needs a Regional Commission to Prosecute Corruption, Not a War on Migration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victoria Sanford. Thanks so much for having me here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And... Vice President Harris recently had a virtual summit with a couple of the Central American leaders and particularly the leader of Guatemala. But in El Salvador and Guatemala, 
there's already been moves underway to cripple the judiciary. El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, his party won a supermajority in Congress and immediately they voted to dismiss the Attorney General and all five judges of the Supreme Court's Constitutional Chamber and a couple of weeks later in Guatemala's legislature uh, refused to swear in the President of the Constitutional Court who is a reformer uh, who's been fighting corruption, Gloria Porras, after she was re-elected. So what's the point of these conversations with these crooks? The leader of Guatemala is famous for a massacre he conducted when he's in charge of the prisons, and he seems to be completely and thoroughly corrupt. The leader of El Salvador is an unquestionably a fascist and a very dangerous, scary guy. And we know that the leader of Honduras is in the drug trade, and his brother is in prison here in the United States for importing hundreds of tons of cocaine. So how can you deal with these people? What's your sense since you spent so much time on the ground and in Guatemala itself, of what can be done to implement the Biden-Harris policy of trying to make life more livable in these countries so the citizens are not forced to journey north on a hazardous journey to emigrate to the United States. Right. You are absolutely right in everything you just said, Ian, and I'm really glad that you offered that opening summary for it, um, because you're right. These guys are crooks. Bukalele is a fascist. Orlando Hernandez in Honduras, um, he's involved in the drug trade. And Yamate is a gross violator of human rights and has been involved in a lot of shady deals in Guatemala. In fact, there was a big demonstration this past Saturday with people um, demonstrating for him to resign because of corruption in the vaccine on the vaccine issue for COVID. But focusing on Biden and Harris, um, I want to start by saying what they shouldn't do. What they shouldn't do is beef up troops in Mexico, in Guatemala, and in Honduras, which is one of the first things that they're doing. There is a deployment of 10,000 Mexican troops on the border with Guatemala, 1,500 Guatemalan troops on its border with Honduras, and a surge of 7,000 troops in Honduras. And we know that those troops in Honduras are prone to human rights violations. And we know that Guatemalan troops have fired tear gas on families trying to cross through Guatemala. And we know that Mexican troops killed a Guatemalan at the border just a few weeks ago. And that, that in Mexico, Guatemalans who've been crossing through the country have been killed and disappeared. Um, so what isn't going to solve the situation is beefing up security. That's never worked because you're beefing up the arms and weapons of the bad guys in Central America when you do that. And it's no doubt that Central America needs aid. They need humanitarian assistance. But if you give $310 million humanitarian aid package to these corrupt governments, it's just a piñata for them. And what really needs to happen, and you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the collapse of the de democratic practice in, in El Salvador with Bukalele basically kicking out the courts, and in Guatemala with the refusal of the right wing to seat a duly elected judge who's known as an anti-corruption crusader. Now, President Yamate in Guatemala 
he'll say, oh, well, I have my own anti-corruption commission. Well, that's like having the fox take care of the, you know, the hen house. Um, that, that's absolutely ridiculous. And he says that there's no longer any need for there to be any international overview of prosecutions in Guatemala because the prosecutors can do their job without any kind of international assistance. But his attorney general is filing claims against the very office that's supposed to investigate corruption. And along with Gloria Portas, who was not seated on the court and is not in Guatemala, um, former attorneys general Claudia Pazzi Paz and Thelma Adana, who are both amazing crusaders against corruption, are in exile. Um, so what needs to happen there for Biden and Harris to have any success is to go right for um, the corruption, go right after the corruption. It needs to be investigated and prosecuted. And these individuals can't do it. And it can't just be the United States. It needs to be the United States with other countries in the Organization of American States in conjunction with the United Nations. That's the only plausible path. And again, I'm speaking with Victoria Sanford, who's a cultural anthropologist who studies human rights, international humanitarian law, the anthropology of genocide, race and gender in the Americans and child soldiers in Guatemala and Colombia. And she's the director of the Center for Human Rights and Peace Studies based at Lehman College in the City University of New York. And she spent years uncovering evidence of genocide in Guatemala. And she has an article at Barrio Zona. Central America needs a regional commission to prosecute corruption, not a war on migration. And there was a UN commission, an anti-corruption commission, operating in Guatemala. But then when Trump came in, all he was interested in was stopping immigration. So he he just turned a blind eye to the corruption and, and the corrupt leaders in Honduras, El Salvador, and in, and in Guatemala. And he didn't object. is a test of the emergency alert system. And um, put pressure on. And, and so Perez Molina accepted the continuation of CICIG, which was ultimately his downfall, which is why President Jimmy Morales, um, who preceded Yamate, didn't want to have the commission continue because he was being investigated for corruption. And of course, the powerful and corrupt don't like commissions against impunity. But in Guatemala, um, it's really very interesting because the highest approval ratings are for CICIG. 75% of the population approved of CICIG and also for prosecutors because they actually saw prosecutions happening. And the, the issue really is if you think about people flee because of violence, people flee because of hunger, people flee because of diminished life opportunities, people flee because of gang violence and cartel violence. All of those issues are outcomes of corruption. And so you can't really address them if corruption isn't addressed simultaneously. Otherwise, you're just throwing money at bad people. And it's not going to get to the people, the resources aren't going to get to the people who really need it. And I was asked, well, 
what, how can you directly connect corruption to migration? Are there any numbers you can come up with? And I thought, well, that's actually a really interesting question. Let me go look at it. And so I went to the Homeland Security site where Border Customs lists how many people come in, are apprehended at the border every month, and I matched it up over over the 12 years that Susig was in Guatemala. And when Susig went in, when Susig first started working in Guatemala, there was a drop of 35% in migration from Guatemala to the United States. And for five years, migration stayed relatively the same. It didn't really go up. It didn't really go down. When Perez Molina and his really corrupt gang came in and set up their parallel tax system, um, you know, border, Guatemalans reaching the border of the United States was up 29%. And that's because the corruption affects the real life chances. It's not that people say, oh, the government's really corrupt. I'm going to flee the country. It's because the government is really corrupt. They can't get health care. Their kids can't go to school. They don't have food. They're not safe. The police aren't functioning. It's corruption that makes all of those things happen. And, you know, when Sisig's mandate was um, not renewed in Guatemala in 2019, that's the highest number of migrants entering the country. 264,168 Guatemalans. Um, and so those numbers bear out a connection between corruption and migration. So short of, uh, of reintroducing the UN Commission on Corruption, which would be hard to do, how can the United States bring about clean governments in these three countries? I refer to it in, in an interview I did recently uh, with Alexander Coburn about this crook that runs Honduras, Hernandez, uh, and his crooked brother who's in jail for in, in, importing hundreds of tons of cocaine into the United States. I refer to the State Department's position as sort of zombie foreign policy. They just keep supporting this guy and they keep supporting these people. I guess... What can you do if you're Harris and Biden? These are the leaders. This is the hand you're dealt. How do you deal with them knowing that they are not interested in, in cleaning up the corruption because they're the beneficiaries of it? I just don't know what the mechanism could possibly be unless the very people in this country rise up and get rid of these guys, but you can't do that because they control the police and the, and the military and the death squads so and the gangs which often work in concert with uh, the corrupt military and police. So how does Vice President Harris go about implementing the programs that they're trying to introduce to make life more livable and to give money? How do you do it to so that the money doesn't disappear and something actually happens? Because you've got to work around these people, don't you? I mean, I don't know how... Tell me what the answer is here, because we all recognize the problem. It's clerics in the, in the face. And I imagine that both Biden and Harris know that they're dealing with corrupt leaders. Right. No, I think that I think that's absolutely true. And I also would add that in the the video that's available where you can see um, Vice President Harris speaking with President Yamate, he just looks like the cat with the canary in his mouth because he knows that he's in the more powerful negotiating position in the way that the negotiations are currently set up. It can't be head of state to head of state. It needs to involve 
larger bodies of government. And if you think back in um, in the history of Central America, um, Samosa was brought down by the Organization of American States. And there was an emergency meeting called and people sat down together and recognized that this could not continue. And I think reasonable people um, can sit down together through the Organization of American States and recognize that this can't continue because it's killing um, citizens in the Americas. It's damaging the entire Western Hemisphere. And it's the drug trafficking, it's the cartels. And the migration is part of that because those same paths that are used by drug traffickers are now controlling migration. And they're the people who are um, uh, extorting migrants who are trying to find someplace safe away from the gangs only to find that the routes to get out are controlled by different gangs as well. And, and I understand your question um, and that, no, we shouldn't be negotiating with um, people who are bad, but we have to recognize who's running a government. Uh, on the one hand, at the same time, um, you know, Guatemala did peacefully push Otto Perez Molina out. Um, by uh, pushing for the, the this hashtag um, resign, right, um, for him to leave and having massive demonstrations out in the plazas. And I think that's what people are trying to redo again right now. But I believe that the United States has a significant role to play and that we can do this in Central America and reclaim the stature of this country as a leader for human rights, as a leader for democracy, by making our position known in the United Nations we sit on the Security Council. This is an international security issue. It should be brought to the Security Council. It should be brought to um, the General Assembly of the United Nations. In the United Nations, when Sisig was operating the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, there was great hope among Central Americans and Mexicans and Colombians that this commission would expand out to include all of those countries and help root out corruption because citizens recognize that they can't lead healthy lives when the country is being run by gangs or when their town municipality is being run by gangs. But in the case of ousting the corrupt leader in Guatemala where the citizens rose up and you had, you had the UN commission exposing the corruption, the election that followed, of course, elected this comedian. I don't know whether he's just as corrupt, but he was very corrupt and very corruptible. So it seems like the bad guys, the military, the drug dealers, etc., behind the scenes are able to manipulate the elections to put their guy in. And in the case of Jimmy Morales, he was a front man, wasn't he? I mean, he, had, he, he was he a comedian. Was. Yeah. No, he was a front man for a military party. He was a front man for a military party. The problem is that when Perez Molina was ousted, it was right before the elections. And um, people in the, the country, civil society organizations, human rights organizations, they were all asking for the elections to be delayed, that the elections should be delayed so that it could sort of reassert itself, reorganize itself. But it had already been set that there would be two candidates, Sandra Torres and Jimmy Morales. And Sandra Torres was being investigated, as was Jimmy Morales. And Jimmy Morales, who was a comedian, he was, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, um, kind of a mirror parallel to Trump, right? I'm not a politician. Um, I'm not corrupt. That was basically his campaign. 
But really, he was deeply corrupt, and he was a front man for a military party. The FCN is a military party. And um, and that's why the policies that they carried out supported the oligarchy and the military and all of the, the powerful parallel structures behind the government uh, because they're, they're, they don't want any kind of commission against impunity. They don't want the prosecutor's office to actually function. Um, so I think that we have to find ways to support it. But I, I think it's a losing proposition if the United States tries to just operate there unilaterally. That's a mistake. It really is. We it, At least we need to bring in Canada and some of our other neighbors in the Western Hemisphere to work on this issue with us because it affects all of the hemisphere. It affects all of the Americas. And the United Nations has had an interest in continuing to do this work. And despite the fact that Sussig was driven out of Guatemala by Jimmy Morales, it really is a success story. And they prosecuted several hundred, like 400 um, individuals were brought down, and these were significant crime networks that were brought down and prosecuted. Tens of millions of dollars were recovered for the government because the issue with corruption, and this is what makes the humanitarian aid a piñata, the issue with corruption is that's money that would be going into the government coffers for government programs for citizens. But when there's graft and corruption, those resources never get there. That's why you end up with a school with no supplies, a hospital with no doctors a medical clinic with no pharmaceuticals. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Victoria, what's your sense of how you can get around these crooks? You mentioned the UN could play a, a role. If you were advising Vice President Harris, what would you tell her to do? I would tell her to meet with Yvonne Velasquez, who ran the Commission Against Impunity, um, who was the final commissioner there because when he was hired it was when Perez Molina was president and Perez Molina and his crew started saying well uh, Ivan Velasquez is being brought in to shut down the commission right because the mandate was coming to a close and Ivan Velasquez looked at the mandate and said well it doesn't say in my contract that I'm hired to close it down I'm hired to do this job I'm hired to do these investigations and he pushed forward and he did more work as in his term as commissioner than had been done previously so I would suggest you speak with him I would suggest you speak with people at the United Nations involved with Susig and people with the Organization of American States who were involved with a commission that they attempted to set up in Honduras, but it didn't have the teeth of the UN-backed commission in Guatemala. I think that's the place to start because minimally what you can get in the short term is a way to do a, a fiscally responsible, um, accountable distribution of resources through civil society organizations. I already see organizations popping up advertising jobs in Central America, and I can tell that they're military front organizations. And it's because they're going to try to get some of that piñata. That's what they're organizing themselves around. So I think that Vice President Harris and her advisors need to speak to people who've been on the front lines in corruption in Central America, including Claudia pa Pazzi Paz, um, who's in uh, Costa Rica, and Thelma Aldana, who's here in the United States, the former attorneys general, who brought down some really significant bad guys in, in Guatemala. Well, Victoria Sanford, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. Nice to talk to you again.
Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with cultural anthropologist Victoria Sanford, who studies human rights, international humanitarian law, the anthropology of genocide, race and gender in the Americas, and child soldiers within Guatemala and Colombia. And she's the director of the Center for Human Rights and Peace Studies based at Lehman College City University of New York. And she spent years uncovering evidence of genocide in Guatemala. And she has an article at Barrio Zona, Central America needs a regional commission to prosecute corruption, not a war on migration. We can take a brief station break. We're back assessing the FDA's authorization of Pfizer's COVID shot for 12 to 15-year-olds, which is getting resistance from parents who have been vaccinated but are wary of giving the same shots to their kids. On the border of Bolivia, worker for pennies, treated like a slave. The poker fields have to be ready. The spirit of my people is starving, broken and sweaty, dreaming about revolution, looking at my machete. But the workload is too heavy to rise up in arms. And if I ran away, I know they'd probably murder my moms. Okay, listen, while I'm out there, just get me my product before we chop off your hands for workers' misconduct. I got the power to shoot a copper and not get charged. And it would be sad to see your family in front of a firing squad. So the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dorit Rice, who's a professor of law and chair of litigation at the University of California Hastings College of Law, whose research focuses on legal and policy issues related to vaccines. And she's the co-author of an article at Barron's, One More Argument Against Vaccine Mandates Crumbles. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dorit Rice. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, on Monday, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the Pfizer vaccine for younger adolescents between the ages of 12 and 15 years of age. And a recent survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation's Vaccine Monitor found that many parents, many of whom or most of whom have already had their own COVID shots, are nevertheless reluctant to vaccinate pubescent children. So how do we overcome that barrier? So first of all, hesitancy when the new vaccine comes out is normal. Pretty much every vaccine that came up, maybe with the exception of polio, uh, met, has met with some hesitancy at first. One thing that gets over it is seeing the other kids get the vaccine and seeing that the sky doesn't fall. So one thing that will help with that really is uh, time. People need time to get over their fears. The other thing is transparency. Provide the data, uh, show that this is based not only on thousands of children in the trial, but on the background of over 100 million doses given to the adults safely. So the fact that the Biden administration are reaching out to pediatricians, is that helpful? Yes, many parents trust their doctors. Studies suggest that doctors are among the most trusted sources on this issue. And a recommendation from a doctor, ideally even maybe a, a statement from the doctor that I vaccinated my children or I would vaccinate if my children were, were of age might really help. And of course, along with pediatricians, the 
Biden administration wants to use 20,000 pharmacies as sites for vaccinations as well. So obviously there is efforts underway, but, you know, I get mail from, I don't know whether you you can call them anti-vaxxers, but people are outraged at the coverage. You know, my own daughter is a, has a chair at uh, Stanford and she's in emergency medicine. She mm-hmm. actually came down with COVID herself, by the way. Okay. And it's what's extraordinary about some of these anti-vaxxing rants I get are that these people are not, you know, they're educated. I mean, but they're steeped in conspiracy and uh, they're quite passionate about it. So I don't think you can under- underestimate the obstacles out there in the zeitgeist in terms of how to convince people, particularly when these vaccines are authorized by the FDA under um, an emergency use. So let's talk about that barrier, the emergency use barrier, which is what you write about in your article in Barron's. So the emergency use authorization, to remember that for many of these parents or um especially those that are not committed anti-vaccine activists, there's probably lack of understanding of the differences between an emergency use authorization, especially as it was applied to these vaccines, and full licensure. There are real differences. we know that we know from HCQ that you can authorize a product for emergency use authorization with very little data. But if you look at the emergency use authorization process of this vaccine, it was different. The FDA said that they're going to do a process that they called EUA plus, basically demanding quite a high level of evidence for the vaccines before they provided the authorization. These vaccines received emergency use authorization with data that's as good as many licensed vaccine studies in tens of thousands of people, the duration was shorter. So the FDA demanded two months of data. Uh, The minimum for a BLA would be six months, but the amount of data was very substantial. So uh, looking at the emergency use authorization status alone uh, is probably a mistake because you're missing the extensive data behind it. The other part here is uh, the EUA status does come in, but probably for many parents, the main thing is these are new vaccines using a new technology coming out faster than ever before. And that raises a lot more questions. Now there are answers to those questions. And and as you're saying, um, some people need data. Some people, it's not necessarily the evidence that would sway them. For many people, the question isn't purely rational. We, We worry. The pandemic has been a, a national trauma, I think a global trauma. Uh, so people are concerned, stressed, and new vaccines feed right into that. So we, it, it's not going to be enough to put out information. That's where, as you said, the pediatricians are really important. Pediatricians have a relationship with the parents beforehand. You trust the doctor with your child. Uh, it's not just about vaccine and it's not just about a one-time interaction. Getting the information from a trusted source with which you already have a relationship, someone that you have reason to think in the past uh, is working to protect your children, can help. That there isn't a quick and easy solution here. Uh, people are going to need time and we're going to need to look at the data. Uh, but I'm 
relatively optimistic. I know there's a First of all, a lot of parents who are very eager for the vaccines. I just had a talk today with a parent with asthma who says, I'm really worried about my children getting COVID. So far, we avoided it. I'm really looking forward to be able to vaccinate them given their condition. So there are also parents that are very eager. And remember that when we're at least talking about teens, the teens are going to want at some point to be able to vaccinate as well. They want to pick up their lives. And with teens, their views are going to matter. They're no longer the five-year-old. And again, I'm speaking with Dorit Rice, who's a professor of law and chair of litigation at the University of California Hastings College of Law, whose research focuses on legal and policy issues related to vaccines. She's the co-author of an article at Barron's One More Argument Against Vaccine Mandates Crumbles. Now, in terms of vaccine mandates, your, your article argues that once the vaccine is approved, it will remove a tool anti-vaccine groups have used to frighten people off vaccinating. And there have already been three lawsuits currently challenging COVID-19 vaccine mandates. So do you think that the EUA, the Emergency Youth Authorization for Pfizer, will be lifted? How long before that will happen? So... It's up to the experts to look at the data that I don't have. Uh, the data that we've heard about is very promising. And if it pans out, I expect the FDA will give them a license. But again, I don't have the data. I also want to mention that our article talks about employer vaccines and vaccines for uh, mandates for adults, not for children. That's a different a situation with a different legal framework. So we were focusing on uh, employer mandates rather than um, children's mandates. Sure, and you're you're talking about workplaces where staff interact with vulnerable populations. That's the police, first responders, people working in correctional facilities, immigration detention facilities, nursing homes, healthcare workers, the military, daycare workers, etc., and exactly. and also in small businesses uh, where you have restaurant personnel, people aren't working for airlines, cruise lines, mass transit, ad- adult homes, gyms, music clubs, sports venues, theatres, etc. So those are the people that I take it you feel uh, would be a priority. Yes. So um, one of the problems, though, Dorit, is that vaccinating and vaccine resistance And of course, from the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, it's been a race between vaccination and mutation. And Mm. we, we, you know, if if we don't get everybody vaccinated, we'll lose the race because more and more virulent uh, and deadly forms of mutations will take place and they will overcome the efficacy of the vaccines that are working uh, right now. So it's a really critical situation. But unfortunately, a recent poll indicated and this is why it's mm-hmm. it's unfortunate it's become a political issue 40 percent of republicans will not take the vaccine so how do you how do you get around that so first of all i completely agree with your point that it's unfortunate that it becomes a political issue normally in pandemics it's humanity against the germ and we should stick to that rather than uh, have parts of humanity against other parts of humanity uh, Uh, not fighting the germs. So um, the politicization is an issue and some of it is probably unsolvable. So there's probably groups that we won't be able to reach at least in the time we have. 
that that's one place where we could use mandates. But before we talk about mandates, I also want to point out that mandates by themselves aren't the solution, especially since in states that have a concentration of people who are opposed to the vaccine, they're less likely to pass politically. Uh, they, they are part of your toolbox, but we need to make sure that we're working besides the mandate also on education, access, etc. Because I think opposition can be overcome if uh, the right, if trusted authorities give the right information. And, and there are a lot of questions there, such as who are the trusted sources and will they give the information? But mandates by themselves aren't a solution with, certainly not without more. Uh, we can use incentives. So we've seen, for example, on a somewhat strange tweet, uh, twist this week that, bears, uh, that uh, beers for shots has had some success in places. Bringing incentives that people appreciate and bringing vaccines to where people are can take us at least part of the way. So um, connect, uh, give vaccine in places where people with concerns uh, congregate and maybe Use some peer pressure, have people help each other overcome their fears, uh, take the vaccines to the pub, to the concerts, to the places where people are. That's one thing. And yes, the right use of mandates can help, but it needs to be thoughtful. So when it comes, for example, going back to the examples you raised, correction uh, facilities, nursing home, etc., you have a population that literally can't leave and you have a staff that goes in and out of the community the rights of the staff matter but so do the rights of the people in the place and they deserve safety uh, at some point if you are not willing to vaccinate you shouldn't be working with a vulnerable captive population so if, if uh, you're saying it's complicated. There's not going to be an easy, fast solution for this. You're right. But there are things we can do. Bring the vaccines to people. For some communities, the issue really has been access. Uh, they may not have the days to take time off to go get vaccinated. They may have had trouble getting a vaccine appointment. That's no longer an issue in many places. Uh, but it was an issue at first and people might not stick with it. So bring vaccines to the people. Uh, improve access, give the incentives, and judicially use mandates, uh, I think should get us close. I'm more optimistic than I was a few months ago because of the data coming out, for example, from Israel and the United Kingdom, where we're seeing that 50 or 60% vaccination of the population led to dramatic declines in COVID. To me, this says that we can do this, uh, even though it takes efforts, it takes uh, collaboration, and it we may not need as high rates as we think. And I'm careful about that because I'm not an epidemiologist and I know there are epidemiologists who disagree. Well, in terms of authority figures, you mm -hmm. already have hearings today in the Senate yes. where Dr. Fauci and the head of the CDC have been attacked by Senator Rand Paul and others, Republican senators, for various reasons. I don't know what exactly their motivations or their, their certainly uh, their arguments are pretty easily shot down. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, of a sort of popular authority figures that might be able to penetrate this, this uh, resistance, you know, most sort of Hollywood celebrities, that wouldn't work because the people who don't want to be vaccinated 
hate Hollywood at any rate. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. do you have any ideas about how you could have a national campaign that would reach the people who are resistant or indeed the anti-vaxxers themselves? First of all, I, I'm not, I would not recommend trying to reach the committed anti-vaccine movement. I don't think they're reachable. But there's a lot of other people that aren't in that group that can be reached, including people who right now follow anti-vaxxing groups. Um, so some of the figures you may want to keep in mind are religious leaders, uh, some of which are not committed to the anti-COVID or COVID denial uh, frame. Uh, so here's a problem with me saying these are the right people. And we've seen this when we look at uh, the efforts of the black community. When we started, there was concern that we'll see really high rates of hesitancy in black communities. And what happened was that black doctors and leaders mobilized and mounted their campaign. In an ideal world, this should come from the community, not from people like me who are sitting here and saying this is what the community should do. Uh, we want community leaders who are worried about COVID-19 rates in their community to step up and say, here's my idea for a campaign to handle it. Because as you're saying, the reality is that uh, people from the outside will have limited effectiveness. This should be an in-community uh, step. One way is give money, give uh, support to community uh, leaders willing to step up. Give them grants. You want to organize a COVID-19 education effort or COVID-19 incentive in your uh, community? Here's federal money to help support it. And I know the federal government is doing some of this. So uh, this is not a criticism of they're not doing enough. This is just an example of how you can do it. But the reality is that you need to meet people where they are. And they need to hear it from uh, people they trust. Well, of course, the point that you make at the end of your article is the one that has to be made, and that is that vaccines are not just about you. You can choose not to vaccinate for whatever reason, but that does not mean you can choose to make others less safe. So that seems to be the real message. Uh, it's a message about your neighbours and your friends and not about yourself. And I'd hope that for most people, their neighbors and their friends are people that are part of the world and part of the community they want to protect. I think for many people, the issue is they haven't yet internalized that this virus really is a threat to them, their neighbors, their community and everybody around them. And we really need to step up and say, we're humanity. We've overcome other germs. We can... Uh, meet this one too. Well, Dorit Rice, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dorit Rice, who's a professor of law and the chair of litigation at the University of California Hastings College of Law, whose research focuses on legal and policy issues related to vaccines. And she's the co-author of an article at Barron's, One More Argument Against Vaccine Mandates Crumbles. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with the award-winning author and staff writer at the New Yorker, Patrick Radden Keefe, about his new book just out, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. I don't need no doctor Cause I know what's in me
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Patrick Radden Keefe, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction and was selected as one of the 10 best books of 2019 by The New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune and The Wall Street Journal. He's also the creator and host of the eight-part podcast, Wind of Change, and his latest book just out is Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Welcome to Background Briefing, Patrick Radden Keefe. It's great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And tomorrow, Wednesday, before a federal judge in New York, the proposal for the Sackler family to forfeit some of their fortune, but keep quite a bit of it. And, of course, this is because of the fact that the drug epidemic that they created with OxyContin has claimed more than 500,000 lives in this country. Apparently, the judge is basically going to decide tomorrow whether the financial disclosures are sufficient to advance the case into its final stage. But under the proposal, the two branches of the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma would settle more than 3,000 lawsuits against the company. They'd pay $4.3 billion in fines, but they'd keep $7 billion dollars. And this is really upsetting a lot of, uh, as I say, 24 attorneys generals in 24 states. In your state of Massachusetts, Maura Healy, the AG, has said the bankruptcy system should not be allowed to shield non-bankrupt billionaires. It would be a terrible precedent if the Sacklers are allowed to use bankruptcy to escape the consequences of their actions. It would be a roadmap for other powerful bad actors. So... Isn't there a lot more at stake than just the Sackler family here? This is like giving the oligarchy in this country, who <laughs> in many ways have taken over the country, doesn't this give them a free pass? I think it does, yes. I mean, I, I, you know, my book is on the one hand about three generations of a family, but on the other, it is more broadly about the way in which the legal and um, political system in this country tends to insulate the very, very powerful, the super elite, the billionaire class from the downstream consequences of their own bad decisions. So this company, Purdue Pharma, has pled guilty to federal criminal charges not once but twice, initially in 2007. Uh, and at the time, they paid a $600 million fine, but but at a, in a period when they were making billions of dollars a year selling OxyContin. And they said, oh, we'll clean up our act. We'll do better next time. But we now know they didn't. And they, in fact, pled guilty to a new set of criminal charges uh, just this past fall in November. And in between those two guilty pleas, the Sackler family, which owns the company, was carefully pulling money out of the company. So the only way that you get to this bankruptcy is that the family pulled more than $10 billion, $10 billion that we know about, out of the company. And then eventually when the coffers were nearly empty, they, they kicked the company into bankruptcy. He said, oh, it's a pity about these thousands of lawsuits. The company doesn't have any money anymore. 
And so we've had this spectacle over the last more than a year now in, in this bankruptcy court in which you have all these creditors and lawyers kind of fighting over the carcass of Purdue Pharma and sitting on the sidelines of the Sacklers who haven't declared bankruptcy, in fact, have their $10 billion uh, and seem unlikely to face any, any legitimate uh, legal accountability of the sort that you would normally expect these types of bad actors to face. But if a family, a rich family that owns a corporation, can slough off all of their responsibilities onto the corporation, which becomes an empty shell, and then maintain the wealth that they've extracted, that is beyond outrageous. I mean, uh, there was a hearing in December before Carolyn Maloney, her congressional committee, where David Sackler and Kath Sackler both testified. Now, David Sackler being the son of Richard, who'd been running the company, and of course your book talks about his father's, the, the three brothers, which we'll talk about in a minute, but David Sackler was confronted by members of Congress about a memo he wrote in 2007. Two other members of his family uh, said, we're rich for how long? Until which suits get through to the family. So, doesn't that say at all? Isn't that their game plan? It, it does indeed. I mean, I you know I should say I, the family did not cooperate with my efforts to write this book, and, and indeed um, some of them have been threatening to sue me for the last few years. But one of the things that's been really fascinating for me, just as a journalist, is that there are certain claims that the the family's representatives will make. Um, but there's also a lot of document discovery going on. So what, one of the things that the Sacklers have been saying for the last year or two is, oh, we, you know, when we took all that money out of Purdue, it wasn't because we thought lawsuits were coming. Because you see, if th there's an argument which has actually been made by the Attorney General of New York, uh, Letitia James, that if they removed all this money from the company, knowing that eventually there would be lots and lots and lots of lawsuits against the company. That might be a form of fraud. And they have said in response, oh, nobody could ever have predicted that there'd be all of these lawsuits. We were just pulling the money out to pull the money out. And then, of course, what happens is there's more legal discovery, more documents come out, including the email that you just quoted, which is David Sackler saying in 2007, there are going to be more and more lawsuits and eventually some of them will get through to the family. And then there's a whole discussion about pulling money out of the company. Um, so yes, I mean, to me, that looks a lot like they saw a day of reckoning coming eventually and they wanted to prepare themselves so that when that day came, they would be, uh, they would be shielded from liability and their money would be uh, shielded from, from creditors. And again, I'm speaking with Patrick Radden Keefe, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. He is the creator and host of the eight-part podcast, Wind of Change, and his latest book just out is Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And going back to that testimony um, before Carolyn Maloney's subcommittee in the Congress back in December where Carol Maloney said that the Sackler family are being considered by many as uh, the most evil family in America. Obviously, Kath Sackler and David Sackler were extremely uncomfortable, but the, nevertheless, they were arrogant and almost sociopathic. Uh, Kath Sackler, who was on the board of Purdue, 
said that in terms of the 500,000 Americans who've died as a result of OxyContin and, and other drugs based on it, she said, my heart breaks for the parents who have lost their children. And then she said, there's nothing I can find that I would have done differently. I've searched my heart, you know, as though, as though she'd done her due diligence in terms of her moral compass and come up exonerating herself. It was absolutely breathtaking. It was for me as well. And, and I, um, you know, it's funny. I when, when she said that about how she'd looked back and there's really nothing in this whole, this is a kind of 25-year history she's talking about. Um, there's really nothing she would have done differently if she could do it all again. Um, and it occurred to me, I don't think there's a day in my life I could say that about. When if I could do it again, I, I wouldn't do a thing or two differently. Um, it To me, it it was revealing of what I think is a very pronounced family trait across the generations among the Sacklers, which is, I think people tend to see the greed first and foremost, and that's there. That's absolutely an ingredient here. But I think there's also a stubbornness, a stubborn refusal to entertain the notion that, that you might have screwed up. Well, one of the incidents that you, you write about in your book, Patrick Radden Keefe, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, is how... John Oliver, the HBO comedian, has a popular show. Apparently, one of the Sackler family's children, Jacqueline Sackler, her, ch her child, Oliver, loved the show, and she was all terribly upset about the fact that he might see this segment, her son, so she lobbied heavily for to HBO to take the show down or take the segment down, and they were quite aggressive with the lawyers, etc., but... Her attitude, again, going back to this, to the sort of sociopathic nature of this family, was that she was concerned that it might affect her young son's high school prospects and his social standing at high school. No sense about how 500,000 people died from this drug and these families were ripped apart. And when, when parents became addicted, children often had to be put into foster homes, etc. The social harm that has been caused by this drug that this family made something like $13 billion out of. It's just beyond belief. And yet, she, here she is worried about her son's social standing at, uh, at school. And, and, yeah, getting into private school in the fall. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, it, it's the, the irony is even richer than that. The quote um, from this email that I obtained that she wrote to a number of others in, in the family and some of their advisors was she said... Um, she said, lives of children are being destroyed. And she was referring to her own children, you know, her, the, her billionaire children and where they would go to private school. You can listen to the rest of Background Briefing on our HD3 channel, WMNF.org or on a digital radio. This is WMNF Tampa. NPR News is next. Then Janet Sherberger is up with Midpoint. Harrison brings you 360 degrees of the blues at 106. Medically sealed world of privilege.